0: Welcome to Inside the Media Minds. This is your host, Christine Blake. This show features in-depth interviews with tech reporters who share everything from their biggest pet peeves to their favorite stories. From our studio at W2 Communications, let's go Inside the Media Minds. Hey, everyone. This is Christine Blake, the host of Inside the Media Minds. And I'm excited today um, to welcome Vera Bergengruen to the show. Vera is a Washington correspondent for Time, so we're excited to have you here, Vera. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Christine. Absolutely. So um, let's go ahead and get started with a a quick rundown of your background and your role at Time. Um, I think it'd be great for listeners to get to know you and your role.
1: Sure. Um, So, you know, I'm originally uh, from Miami. Uh, I was born in South America, in in Chile, but uh, my parents are from Uruguay and I grew up all over the place in Mexico City and in Germany before moving to Miami and that's where I started as a high school intern at the Miami Herald um which is you know just a massive uh very international newsroom in a very a very crazy city it's kind of a journalist dream so I was just running around covering you know kind of local council meetings and just all the crazy things that were happening uh There, uh, before going to college where I decided uh, that you know that was not really a good career path and everyone told me I should be a lawyer. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) after all of that I did eventually kind of circle back to journalism I always wanted to do this, Um, you know you basically just get to both people and ask them questions for a living and as a very curious person who loves to do that you know it's just honestly kind of a dream job. Um, and I, I went on to work for the Miami Herald's parent company McClatchy, which is uh, you know has a big Washington D.C. bureau, or it used to be big. Right. And yeah. Two. And um, so I, I worked there for um, a couple of years. I um, you know started off as a as an assistant, but then ended up covering uh, you know the White House, the 2016 election, which was so you know just so chaotic, uh, mm-hmm. which was kind of a crazy time to really dip my toes into political reporting and then uh, ended up uh, under the Trump administration uh, covering the Pentagon and national security for most of its duration. Um, and in the in the meantime, you know, getting to do a lot of kind of investigative projects. And so uh, besides McClatchy, I worked for BuzzFeed News. Uh, they used to have a, a big national security team that I was a part of. And for the last few years, I've been here a time uh, getting to really dig in on In on magazine stories and more enterprise, Mm -hmm. which um, has been a nice change and gives me a lot more time to really kind of choose my stories and decide what I want to do.
0: That's awesome. So you do do, so you do uh, take the approach of choosing your stories and then taking kind of a deeper dive approach, right?
1: Yeah, and that's you know one of the great. uh, I mean, I've I've gotten to do both. I've been in newspapers where I have to write three, four stories a day based on you know just really quickly based on on just current Mm -hmm. events. And then uh, something like BuzzFeed News, where it was a bit of a mix, but, you know, working for a magazine, uh, you know, it, it, I often do do, you know, kind of daily stories when, when things are happening, but, uh, but you do get to kind of focus often for weeks or months at a time on, on one long feature story, which is a mm-hmm. massive luxury for, for, as journalists know, that's a massive luxury and, um, and you know, really think about what we're trying to say and, and how to structure a story and who to talk to. And um, so I'm really grateful for that. And, uh, you know, the last two years I've had no no lack of uh, crazy things to pursue and really dig into.
0: Oh, yeah, I'm sure. So how do you go about choosing the stories that you write?
1: You know, it's it's uh, it, it kind of depends on uh, most of the places I've worked in. Uh, I've uh, benefited from looking for areas that are not being covered, I think, sufficiently or not a lot uh, in my in my news organization, um, because, you know, nowadays they're obviously often smaller. There's just way too few of us and way too much going on. So when I, uh, for example, was at McClatchy, uh, you know, I was a good 10 years younger than the Mm next... reporter back then, and, uh, you know, there was no tech reporter uh, back in the early 2010s, and um, I started kind of volunteering to do stories on, you know, net neutrality was a big thing back then, and, you know, all of these kind of what I would, you know, I called tech issues, but were just kind of big, broad issues that no one was really covering. Um, and I've kind of continued that on, you know, here at uh, a time, for example, uh, I've been, uh, you know, I, I've been given my national security background. I kind of pivoted a lot into disinformation, right. into online communities, into um, you know a lot of these online spaces where a lot of extremist and kind of problematic things uh, happen. And so since no one else was really doing that here, um, I started really doubling into it, um, especially during the pandemic. But then it really became significant, uh, extra significant, obviously, around January 6th and everything that came after. So, mm-hmm. what, so that's one of the main ways I often figure out how to approach my stories is, um, you know, is, is kind of doing that, is is trying to figure out, you know, what what is not really being covered by our publication and what can I kind of maybe add something to um, instead of, you know, obviously just competing or... Or, or, or feeling like I'm not really doing much original work.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. And that's actually, um, I know we worked with you a couple months ago on a disinformation story, because I know that's been a big part of your work, and it was on the Latin American elections. Um, but it's, you know, when we get into, you know, the texts here in cybersecurity, there's so much overlap when it comes to, um, you know, politics and national issues, of national security and all kinds of stuff like that. So it must be pretty fascinating for you to kind of dig deep into those issues.
1: It is. And, you know, I'm not, that's not my background. Uh, you know, I'm not a you know, originally a, a tech reporter or someone who, who academically studied that, or, you know, beyond, you know, a couple of fellowships or things like that. That's obviously, I, it, it's, it's an interesting thing to feel so humbled by the fact that I barely understand, you know, not barely understand, <laughs> but really I'm trying to, um, you know, get to go to the world's smartest people and ask them to explain right. things to you. And then I have to process it in a way to explain it back to a reader. Um, and it's a, it's a very, it's a very, you know, deep. Uh, it's it's it's, an, it's interesting work. It's very difficult sometimes, but uh, but you know, in a way, it's uh, I, I'm a I'm an, I'm the stand-in for the reader, and you know, mm-hmm. a, a place like Time has a massive audience um, of general, you know, a general reading audience. So it's 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 really uh, for something like tech uh, or or disinformation or online, you know, all these different online spaces. It's a really great kind of uh, approach to put myself in their shoes and then um, you know try to learn things on my own before I explain them back.
0: Yeah, no, that's fascinating. And I was going to ask that too, because, you know, time is such a wide-reaching, somewhat mainstream sort of audience. Like, how do you define your audience and then how do you tailor your writing style and research and articles to that audience?
1: Yeah, that's a great question because it really depends. And it's, uh, it's something I've thought about a lot because when I started my career, I was writing for local newspapers. So, you know, I was writing, even when I was in DC, I was writing for California's papers, you know, I was mm-hmm. writing for a Miami audience. And it was very easy to define your audience and what right. they would be interested in. Uh, when I went to BuzzFeed, I struggled a bit because, um, you know, it was a, a much younger audience, it was an online audience, a digital audience. Um, and it could be much, you know, I was trying to cover the Pentagon <laughs> for this. Uh, for this very different uh, kind of group. And so uh, that was, you know, its own challenge. But, um, you know, recently at time, especially given that I'm not really uh, on a very narrow beat, you know, if you are a beat reporter, um, your audience is people who follow that issue. And since I'm much more doing this much more broadly for the most part, um, recently, especially uh, during the pandemic and given just all the massive um, kind of earth shattering things that have been happening all around us, one of the main things I've been focusing on is like, what can I write that will, give people information that will get them to change their minds or to see things differently um, when it comes to really important issues. So, you know, I, I've, this year, for example, i focused a lot of that on um, the anti- anti-vaccine movement, on things like that, where um, I'm like, I'm not telling you anything about medicine. That's not my area. But I do want you to see, you know, why these people are telling you, you know, are selling what, what people are selling you. And what they are, you know, why they're trying to do that. And so it's been interesting to kind of figure out, um, for example, um, with the COVID stuff, I focused on scammers a lot or grifters. And I've done that with a lot of political reporting as well, because I figure, you know, no one, I'm not going to change anyone's mind or give them anything useful you know, if I just straight up write about politics in a way that puts them off, but if I kind of reveal the scam, you know, if there's something that's universal is no one likes getting scammed. Right. Right. And so um, if I can show you that these people are just making money off you. At least there's an extra data point you have to, to hopefully be more skeptical about this. And so um, that's one of the main ways I've tried to define my audience. It's like, what can I, uh, as an investigative reporter, uncover or add to the conversation that will, um, you know, again, allow people to change their minds in a way that doesn't, feel like, you know, in these days where people disagree with so much of what they mm-hmm. call mainstream media, um, you know, I, I think the only way you can really do that is by uncovering new facts instead of just kind of regurgitating things back.
0: Right. No, that's, that's fascinating. That's a really interesting approach too, because you want to be able to educate that audience and give them as much information as possible on these topics. Exactly.
1: Right. And, like, you know, one of the, the way I can tell it works uh, much of the time is, you know, the, just a the massive amount of feedback I get um, and you know, all the way to like one of my, you know, the Congress opened an investigation to one of the groups I covered a couple of weeks ago, um, that was selling, you know, fake COVID cures, um, and, you know, things like that, when you actually see an, an end result, or you see a huge amount of, you know, a lot of people telling me they're sending this to their family members or right. things like that. Oh. Um, that's that, at least it seems like in its own small way. Um, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's helpful and it's, uh, it's making people look at things in a different way because I've uncovered new facts.
0: Oh yeah. And that's so important right now in this day and age. Um, what is one of the most, I don't know, memorable or interesting topics that you've covered maybe in, in the last year, or even in your entire, you know, journalism career?
1: <laughs> um,
0: let me <laughs> probably, see. Probably a lot. Gonna... It's a tough question.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we, my, my co-colleagues joke that I'm on the chaos beat because it's, um, I, yeah. anything that is the most chaotic I tend to cover. I, you know, I covered, you know, like I said, you know, the, the, the pandemic, the aftermath of January 6th, you know, then I went down deep on conspiracy theories and, you know, all these right. other things. But um, one of the interesting stories um, I, I covered um, earlier this year was that um, I, I started noticing that um, a lot of people who followed, uh, you know, the QAnon conspiracy and similar kind of uh, conspiracies um, were kind of, you know, being quiet after, uh, you know, after everything that happened. And I, I noticed that, I started just seeing all these like little reports um, of people, you know, people who had participated and people who were, you know, big proponents of this theory running for local school boards, running for local elections, city councils, things like that, um, because there seemed to be this big shift where they decided that, you know, they wanted to affect change from the bottom. But uh, by the time I noticed this, you know, now, now it's a more covered story, but when I noticed this was, was pretty early on. And so I, I ended up finding like, you know, half a, almost a dozen examples and and putting them all together. And that was a really, really fascinating story because uh, the main people who were paying attention to this were teens, you know, I was noticing like all these teens in their high schools were noticing that, you know, that the the kind of crazy views from their Mm -hmm. local school board member uh, were actually, you know, pretty apocalyptic conspiracy theories and so they were calling them out um and so I got to talk to all these you know very incensed very very intelligent teenagers who were you know were trying to tell the adults that they should be paying attention so that was a pretty memorable uh story just because it was one of those things that um you know we published and then I got you know just massive dozens and dozens of emails of people saying they were noticing similar things in their own communities and how conspiracy theories were kind of seeping into the local Mm -hmm. government and so, yeah, one of those stories that kind of snowballs the more you you look at it.
0: That is interesting. Wow. And you, you just sparked another question. Do you get like feedback from readers a lot on your articles or just like questions or follow-ups like as emails or even on yeah. social <laughs> media?
1: Right. Um, I do, you know, everything from, you know, back when I worked for, for newspapers, I got actual physical letters mailed to me all <laughs> the time, which was kind of funny. Uh, recently, you know, obviously it's gotten a bit scarier, especially being, uh, you know, a female reporter, you know, you get mm-hmm. a lot of. Backlash sometimes, given the topics that I cover, um, a lot of you know hate mail, which isn't that concerning, or actual threats. But I mean, and, and, and I mean that's obviously a small proportion. But I do get a, a good amount of feedback from readers, um, you know, and so, like, also from from sources, or from potential sources, uh, you know. That's it's it for, for, some, you know, the story I told you about that I, um, I covered about, you know, people, these, these doctors peddling kind of fake COVID cures, like, you know, like the famous horse paste, Ivermectin, things like that, and how they're making money of all of this. Uh, you know, I just got so many pharmacists and doctors all across the country who are seeing the same thing and who, um, had no idea. And then some people who worked for some of these, uh, pharmacies and things like that, uh, who told me they quit because they, they knew something weird was going on, but they didn't, they weren't aware of how much they were involved. Um, so you see like a big range from from people personally involved in the things you're covering all the way to, um, you know, just general reader interest. But I will say that the the split between positive and negative feedback is usually 50-50.
0: <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you mentioned, you know, getting, talking to smart people on, the, on these topics and learning a lot from them. And really playing that role as the reader yourself. So what do you look for when you're talking to resources or trying to figure out who your resources should be? What do you look for?
1: You know, um, it's, it's one of the, yeah, it's just one of the things I really, truly love the most about this job is that almost anything I write about, um, like, you know, in this case, when I worked with you guys on this story and on, on Honduras, like you will find one person or a group of people who are experts in the most niche topics like you know you will you will find people who's um who spend their entire lives focusing or like a big chunk of their careers focusing on one thing and you get to ask them and they will you know gladly for the most part, I've almost never been rejected, you know, gladly share all of their expertise with you. Um, so one of the things I usually look for is, you know, obviously expertise, um, you know, uh, there's, I I did my chunk of political reporting where you, you know, basically ask politicians to just riff and I, that's my least favorite thing, (laughs) but, um, but, you know, people who truly understand the subject matter and who are, who are willing to share, um, there's, you know, um, usually I find that uh, I look for sources that I can tell, um, are often also generous, like they're happy to not only share their time, but to refer me to other other resources, to colleagues, to reports. Um, I can often tell who those people are, because, again, if if it's someone I basically what I guess what I'm trying to say is if one person is is a truly a subject matter expert and really wants to talk to you and is happy to share their expertise, then um, they are usually a gateway to, to to finding much more than you you know, just much more that you can use. Um, And and that tends to be the case again if if people truly um, are are experts in a certain area, Um, and and that generosity is always just kind of you know I'm always amazed I'm wondering why people would talk to me at all, but um, you know I guess I'm speaking more about uh, organizations and 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 um, and experts, but obviously uh, when I speak to sources in terms of uh, you know human sources or people who've experienced events, uh, the same thing applies. Mm -hmm.
0: No, yeah, that that definitely makes sense. Um, let me see here. So we do, we do ask listeners for questions. I do have a couple for you here. Um, so one of them is, you know, focusing on some international stories as well. I think over, over the course of your time at time, how do you make these international trends resonate with American audiences for those particular pieces?
1: Yeah, you know that's a really good question. You know, uh, I, as I said before, I'm from South America originally. I always mm-hmm. thought I would become, you know, a foreign correspondent. My my natural interests often lie in international stories. Um, but having worked only for U.S.-based publications, uh, it is hard to to make it. Uh, and it's been my, you know, my, my the whole struggle of my career trying to make people care or editors even um, who, you know. Through no fault of their own, but you know they just very much um, meet the story to to resonate with an American audience in order to be able to approve it. And so um, I'm always finding trying to find new ways to do it. When I was a, a national security correspondent, it was a little bit easier because um, you know there's so much going on that you can just kind of write off as a U.S. national security issue and then actually write a foreign story um, because everything kind of relates back, you know, national security. Uh, and many technology issues as well. I've been focusing recently on on some stories about Facebook and and social media, and that's ultimately a global story, right? So so trying to um, kind of uh, zoom in on on what will, uh, what Americans will relate to and mm-hmm. then kind of remind them, I mean, like the story that we mentioned about disinformation in, in Honduran elections, I mean, this is something that I'm, Americans are very aware of from their experience in the in the last election, in the 2016 election. Mm-hmm. And so um, kind of relating it back to that, and, and for example, in this case, framing it as uh, a lot of other countries uh, taking a page out of uh, you know disinformation efforts in the u s. and then applying it to their own countries is a way to write about a foreign issue while also putting in the framework that American audiences really understand. Um, and and you know, the other way to do it is obviously just you know always kind of flicking back to us foreign policy. but right, uh, right. it's something that I'm always trying to do. Um, and it, you know it's I'm always kind of trying to come up with new ways to to make these things resonate.
0: Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Um, and then another question, we kind of touched on this a little bit and a lot of the things that you've been covering this year, but, you know, as the year wraps up, what has been your favorite and our most important story of 2021? And then what are you, you know, thinking might be some of the big, big trends or big things on the horizon for you in 2022? Oh,
1: man. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, as I'm looking forward, I'm, you know, it's, it's, uh, yeah, that's a really good question. And a very tough one to answer, um, okay. you know, based on, on, you um, on on just, again, not to be repetitive, but what I tend to focus on, what I cover, there's such a strong thread throughout, which is basically uh, disinformation, which is kind of a, you know, a catch-all for a lot of things and hard to explain to people. Um, But, you know, because everything is, could be, you know, mis- and disinformation online is just such a broad topic, but it's something that just isn't going anywhere. And it applies to every single area of our lives from the, from, you know, it's one of the big regions that we can't seem to end the pandemic is is a lot of online misinformation. It's going to be very, very significant in the upcoming midterm elections, which is something here in the DC Bureau we're obviously focusing on. And I'm constantly kind of trying to figure out if coming out, hopefully, you know, knock on wood, coming out of this pandemic, um, whether people will kind of come out of some of these online rabbit holes, online spaces, um, you know, these kind of echo chambers that we've built for ourselves during the pandemic when people were spending less time together and people spend so much more time online, um, and which was obviously kind of only spurred on by social media companies and, you know, they're, just their complete lack of preparedness for this, or whether, you know, it's only going to get worse. Um, so I'm kind of optimistic. I think that... Um, over the course of 2021, everyone just became very aware of the disruptive forces of this. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we just keep making progress. Uh, You know, people like to rag on on tech and social media companies, but I do feel like at least a lot of the public's eyes have been opened to a lot Mm -hmm. of the ways that this works. So this is a threat that I will continue, that I followed a lot this year, and that I will follow into the next, uh, will be just kind of kind of that, whether we've all kind of learned some lessons through this and whether it becomes easier or more difficult to kind of, I guess, counteract these forces of, uh, of online disinformation.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, great. And then, uh, so just, you know, for our listeners to get to know you a little bit more too, like, what are you interested in outside of work and outside of your reporting? Anything interesting that, you know, people may not know about you?
1: (laughs) Well, I do spend a good amount of my time just going back and forth to see my my family who lives in Miami and then yeah. traveling pre-pandemic in, in South America. So I feel like that's that tends to take up so much of my of my time. Um but, but yeah, I mean, I I you know, I love to uh I feel like all my hobbies are always just bear. <laughs> I feel like I talk to a lot of most of my friends are a good amount of my friends are journalists. And I feel like a okay. lot of my hobbies, you know, which is uh yeah, here it tends to be common, but I feel like we we joke that all of our hobbies tend to be like kind of bare sustenance you know it's like I like yeah. to run I like to cook and people are like yeah that's just that's not really a hobby that's just things you do <laughs> in general but um but yeah I mean that's that's one thing I've really enjoyed during the pandemic um you know I, I, it's so it's so stereotypical but I got really into um into uh you know cooking again and you know uh it's funny my birthday was a couple of weeks ago and I got like at least five different cookbooks so I think I made that clear to all of my friend group that this is something that should uh oh nice should, uh, yeah, just kind of uh, you know, I I really love uh, international cuisines, and just kind of especially during the pandemic, kind of traveling through, just mm-hmm. trying out all these crazy recipes, and then inviting friends over once we were able to. So. Yeah. I mean, uh, again, just kind of normal topics, but when you spend all day, especially mm-hmm. like I tend to do just kind of marinating in some of the darker things on the internet, it's really yes. nice to kind of uh, focus on
0: something completely different. <laughs> right. And just be mindful as you're cooking on what what you're doing in that very moment. So that's exactly <laughs> awesome. Well, Vera, thank you so much for uh, talking to me today and joining me on the podcast. It's been a pleasure getting to know you and um, learning more about how you approach your stories and your role at time. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And everyone, this has been Christine Blake, the host of Inside the Media Minds. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for joining us on today's episode of Inside the Media Minds. To learn more about our podcast and hear all of our episodes, please visit us at w2com.com slash podcast and follow us on Twitter at Media Mind Show. And you can subscribe anywhere podcasts are found.